Hey, I'm Pastor Joel, and I just want to say thank you for downloading or streaming this message today. My prayer for you is that you're blessed by the content that you hear. As a church, our desire is to make disciples of Jesus, and we do that by helping people to trust and follow Him in every aspect of their daily life. So if this is something that blesses you, we just hope that you'll feel free to share this with others so that they might be encouraged and challenged by it as well. My name is Andy Malcolm. I'm the small groups pastor here at Grace Fellowship, and today's kind of a unique day for us. Um, if you've been here for a while, uh, you know that we've been going through Revelation together. And today we're going, not going to depart from Revelation, we're just going to take a little detour in Revelation. And I want to point out a couple of verses to you this morning that we haven't quite got to yet in our study of Revelation. But the first one comes from Revelation chapter 5. And John writes and he sees this vision in where there's people gathered around uh, and talking about a new song. It says, the song says, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you are slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And we just finished singing that line that said, Jesus is greater. And one of the things that makes Jesus greater is because this verse looks back on what Jesus did 2,000 years ago when He shed His blood for us on the cross. And He purchased for God people to be His own. And redeemed us from the slavery of sin, redeemed us from the penalty that we should have paid, which is death. And He took all that upon Himself on the cross so that people from every tribe and language and people and nation can become part of God's family. This verse looks back on what Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago. But just a couple chapters later, in Revelation chapter 7, you see this verse. And John again has this vision, and he says, He looked, and there before him was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And this verse looks forward to something that hasn't happened yet. When people from every tribe and tongue and nation will one day be gathered around the throne worshiping God for who He is, worshiping God their Savior. This looks forward. The other verse looked back. And then you have us, all of us. We are gathered here in between those two verses, in between what happened 2,000 years ago and what's going to happen someday in the future. And there's tension there for us. And you know where that tension comes from? Because God has asked us, He has asked us to play a part in helping share the gospel, the truth of what Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago, he wants us to be involved in sharing that gospel truth with others so that other people from every tongue, tribe, and nation across the world can be gathered before Him around the throne someday in the future. We have a part to play in that. That can make us nervous. It can make us uncomfortable. But it's what He has for you and for me to do, to share the truth of what Jesus did for us and how much God loves us. And today we have the unique opportunity to, to be introduced to a couple of families that may be new to you who have decided to dedicate their life 
to the sharing of this gospel truth to people and nations and tribes and tongues from all over the world. And so we're going to introduce to you a couple people today. Uh, and you're going to get to know them. And we're going to have fun together. Paul Wingfield, come on up here. Uh, Paul and his family have been part of our uh, fellowship since early fall and have been visiting with us, gotten involved in a life group and involved. Paul's been involved with the youth a little bit the last few weeks as well. And you're going to get to hear his story and kind of what God is doing with him uh, in order to share the gospel. So, Paul, thanks for being here. We're glad you're, you're vis- not just visiting with us, but become a part of the life of Grace Fellowship Church. And we got a fam. I p- think a picture of your family up here. Tell us a little bit about these people who are willing to go out in public with you. Yeah, yeah I know, right? Um, <laughs> so this is my wife, Erin. Um, first thing you can probably tell is that I married up. Um, <laughs> she has been beautiful both inside and out, and I'm so thankful that I trapped her. I mean, married her. Um, she just loves me so well, loves the Lord, loves our kids. Um, you got River over here. He's my oldest. He's seven. And then Sawyer next to my wife. He's five. And then Everly, and she is two. And they are just a bundle of chaos and joy, but mostly chaos. Um, yeah, so they're an adventure. And yeah, God just knows my, my sense of adventure. And he's definitely gifted me with three little adventurous kids. So yeah, it's great. I'm, I'm thankful for each of them. So there's an adventure at home Yes. Uh, that, that we've heard a little bit about. But you're getting ready to go to Ecuador. Next month, here in just a couple of weeks, you're leaving uh, on a whole different kind of adventure. Tell us a little bit about what Ecuador holds for you guys. Yeah, so um, I work, have been working closely with this organization called the Wilderness Ministry Institute. Uh, and what our vision and mission is, is we go and find local uh, catalytic leaders that just have a heart to reach young people in their culture with the gospel. Uh, here's one of his, this is uh, Byron, and this is last year in Ecuador on top of Cotopaxi. Um, we, he's a youth leader there engaged in uh, mission for uh, youth there in Ecuador. And what we do is we come alongside these guys and we just form these long-term, long-lasting uh, discipling relationships. Uh, and really the foundation of, of our relationship with these leaders is built on that principle of John 15 of you know, if you abide in me and I abide in you, you will bear much fruit. That is the most important thing that we can teach any leader um, is that your relationship and your ministry and everything is built on your close proximity to Jesus. Uh, and out of that, he will produce much fruit in your life. Uh, and so we go down there and we just teach them that first and foremost. If they're married, um, we really invest in their marriage um, because out of those, their relationship with the Lord and their relationship with their family, will they have a good ministry? Um, so we're, yeah, we teach them how to use the wilderness adventure as well as a way to form relationships and disciple youth in their culture. So you're going down there not to minister to the youth. You're going down there to minister to the youth leaders, to disciple them. Correct. And build relationships with them so that they can therefore in turn uh, make disciples and build relationships with their youth down there. That yes, right? that's yep. correct. All right. So I'm guessing that you didn't grow up as a 10 or 12 year old thinking, gosh, one day I want to teach uh, youth leaders in Ecuador how to, to, to use the wilderness to reach out to their, to their youth. So how did you get from, from the point you were here, because you grew up here, you went to South High School, right. how did you get from that to wanting to go and spend your life investing in people in another country? Yeah, so at a young age, uh, I accepted Christ at my church, and, um, but I, I didn't really get the whole like, relational aspect of that, that the whole follow me part that's pretty important. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just kind of had my salvation card in my back pocket, you know, because I didn't want to go to hell, right? Um, but it wasn't until I was about 22 um, that, by the grace of God, he kind of called me back into the church and um, 
we got involved at our church and started serving and ultimately ended up being in student leadership there. And I still was like, I was doing all of these things, going to church regularly, serving it, but I feel, still felt something was like missing. Uh, and it was that discipleship. It was, I didn't really have anybody intentionally discipling me and pouring into me. Um, and so I wanted to start a wilderness ministry just from my passion of loving the outdoors. And so I reached out to this wilderness ministry institute place. Uh, and they're based in Fort Collins, Colorado. I said, hey, I want to start this wilderness ministry in my church. Uh, and they said, well, we have a guy that's on staff with us that lives in Johnson City. And I was like, oh, wow, okay, that's a God thing. Um, reached out to this guy uh, in a mildly stalkerish manner. Um, that's a whole other story we don't have time for, but I'll tell you about it because it's funny um, later. Um, so reached out to him and met with him, and he took me backpacking. Most miserable backpacking trip I've ever been on. Um, it was cold, below zero, snow, just awful experience. Uh, and in my mind, my whole philosophy of ministry was like, hey, just try to attract people, how to try to get as many kids to my events and my programs that I'm doing, um, because the more the better, right? So this guy was like this big wilderness guru in my mind, and we're in the tent, and I asked him, I was like, how do I grow my wilderness ministry, expecting this formula? Uh, and he's from Ecuador, and he said, well, you pick one or two people, you walk with them for a year, your ministry will grow. I said, you're full of crap, man. It doesn't work that way. And uh, he said, I don't care what you think, and he rolled over and went to sleep. Um, and I was like, this is a very uneventful trip, but so I tried it my way for a year, um, by all outward measures. I had students going on trips with me and I had leaders in charge of students, but there was no life change going on. There was no heart change. These students really weren't coming to walk in this just abiding relationship with Christ because I wasn't doing that. And I wasn't seeing my leaders. I wasn't doing that and pointing my leaders to that. So I came back to Wonka and I said, I think you're right. It does work that way, and I want to know how. And through the last four or five years, he's been faithful to just pour his life into me. Um, and again, in John 15, it says, there's no greater love than this than for a man to lay down his life for his friend or for his brothers. And so I saw that firsthand, Wonka just laying his life down for me, pouring into me. Uh, and that's where my relationship with Jesus really just started to blossom and to grow. And it's out of that experience, um, both of not having that to having that, that really drives my passion um, to show that and to teach that to people. So, yeah, that's kind of how I got here. <laughs> so, so what does disciple making look like then? How do you impact people in your life now, and how do you impact those leaders in Ecuador when you live here and can yeah. only go there sure. once sure. or a couple times a year? Sure. So, you know, we kind of talked about what that looked like overseas. Um, part of what it looks like, for at least for my heart with students, um, is I take students. Um, we have trips a couple times a year that we had done in my, in my ministry that I had at my last church, and um, it doesn't just start there and begin there. Like, we're not just going out on trail for a week, um, and that's the extent of our relationship. To have a good backcountry ministry, you got to have a good thriving front country ministry. And so the whole week that we spend in the backcountry is really built on the relationship that I've formed with these students throughout the other months of the year, right? So I want to tell you a particular story of Harrison. Harrison's on the far left of the screen. I think there's another picture, and he's in a white shirt, yeah, up there to the, over my left shoulder. Um, and Harrison, I'd, been, I'd known Harrison for a couple years, really good friends with his dad. And um, He goes on trail with us, and he, before we go on trail, I always have my students write down, what are your fears and what are your expectations for this trip? And one of Harrison's biggest fears was being caught in a lightning storm. And so we're out on trail for a couple days, and each night um, before we go to bed, me and my other guide, who's in the camo shirt there, um, we'll pray for the students and just pray that God would really reveal himself to them in a, in a life-changing way uh, and something that really alters and shapes their faith and trust in him. 
And so students are already asleep in their tents, and 10 minutes after we specifically prayed for Harrison, it just started thundering, and we're just like, oh, no. And lightning starts coming, and we're like, maybe it'll miss us, maybe it'll miss us, and it's just coming straight over us. And we're on top of this ridge, and so I get all the students out, and I don't know how many of you are familiar with wilderness travel, but if you're in a lightning storm and you're kind of exposed, you have to put your feet together, and you have to squat down like this and cover your head, and that keeps you grounded so you don't die if lightning strikes, I guess. Um, And so we get out of the tents, and I'm like, all right, here's what you got to do, guys. Harrison, 16-year-old boy, he's like crying, terrified. Um, just visibly terrified. And so I'm like, okay, we got to spread out. Um, you know, I was thinking it was 100 yards, but it's really only 100 feet. Mm. Um, so we're spread out along this ridge and can't see anybody. And lightning, rain, thunder just in the midst of it. And I'm praying for these kids that nobody gets hurt, you know, because I don't want to have to talk to parents afterwards. Um, and so as we're spread out and praying for these students, about 30 to 40 minutes in this lightning and thunder and rainstorm, it subsides and it goes away and I go back and collect all the students and Harrison is uh, just, he's really calm. And I'm like, Hey, like, how are you, man? Like what's, what's going on? And he said, you know, I was just singing any kind of Christian song I could think about, you know, to give me some comfort. And he's like, as I started, you know, singing those songs and just um, praying to God, I thought about all the times in scripture that anytime like God's people were in a trial or in a struggle or some kind of hard situation that God always said, I'm with you. And that he always was faithful to be with them. And he's like, I just, I knew that God was with me. And he's like, I just, I'm, I was at peace. And I was like, you know, I'll sit through 100,000 lightning storms for one student to realize that God is faithful to be with us. Um, and so that's something that I guarantee you Harrison will never forget is in life when he faces struggles and is wondering, like, how am I going to get through this? He's going to think of that night mm. and say, you know, God calmed that storm in my life. Mm. And so, man, I'll, I'll do that time and time again just for that so. yeah. and which goes back to John that he, uh, he wants to abide with us yeah. and dwell with us whether it's in great times on top of a mountain or in storms on top of a mountain as well so well how can we as a church be praying for you you leave February 6th I believe for Ecuador for 10 days or so yep, 10 days. how can we be praying for you um, for the next couple of weeks yeah I think just pray for my time uh, we're going to be at a conference where we're teaching to probably 50 youth leaders across Ecuador. Um, But after that conference is over, we're really going to spend a lot of time with about 10 of them, um, where we're going to go back and take some time uh, in the office, which is the wilderness. (laughs) So take some time camping with these guys and just really talking about how God's working in our lives. And I just think pray for those conversations and pray that um, God would just really be um, in the midst of that, leading that. And yeah, that would just be fertile soil. Our hearts would just be like fertile soil. Um, where he can come in and just really shape us and mold us to be, to be more like him and to depend more on him. And um, that my wife would just uh, be, um, not lose her sanity with the, the three kids for those 10 days. Um, and yeah, just that she'll be cared for. Sure. Well, let's do that. Will you join me in praying for, for Paul and his family and the other leaders on this trip? Lord, we do love you. We, we love how creative you are in the ministries that you've given us. Uh, to draw people towards yourself, to make disciples of all the nations. And I pray your grace and blessing over Paul, uh, the other leaders that will be down in Ecuador, and that you'll just uh, give him wisdom and how he and the other leaders share with the 50 or so youth leaders in there, but how they really influence and abide well with those 10 that they'll be spending a lot of time with out in the wilderness. 
and that that uh, it transforms them in a way that they can go and do that with those kids that they're reaching out to in the Ecuador area. We pray for your favor, uh, your presence uh, with Aaron and the kids uh, while he's gone, that the church and the body of Christ will be a, a minister of grace to her and the kids when they need it. Uh, and pray for your grace and that reconciliation when they all come back together uh, 10 days after that also. And Lord, we thank you for what you're doing in their lives and for this story. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, man. Thanks Paul. Appreciate it. Great story. Give my hand. Well, uh, you might have seen in those two uh, verses in Revelation that we were looking at, there were some words that were repeated, like tribe and nation and peoples. And when you look at those, they can mean a lot of different things. And they, that leads us into the next story that we want to share with you this morning. Because uh, the word tribe is something that we don't usually hear very much. Now, if you go to DB, you hear about the Indian tribe there. But you don't hear much about tribes in general. And we have a newly sponsored missionary that Grace Fellowship is supporting, the Hazel family, that's getting ready to head off to an unreached people group, an unreached tribe in Namibia, Africa. And this is Jeremy and Claudia and little Anastasia right there sitting on his lap. And uh, they're with us this morning. You're going to be able to hear from them about what God is doing in their life to reach an unreached people group. And so they wanted to kind of intro their time. Jeremy's going to come up here and speak in just a minute, but wanted to intro his conversation he wants to have with you with a little short video, it's about a minute or so, about what an unreached people group is. So let's watch this together. What is a UPG? UPG stands for Unreached People Group. But to understand what that means, we need to first talk about people groups. When Jesus told his followers, go and make disciples of all nations, the Greek words he used were ta ethne, meaning all ethnic groups or people groups. So what is a people group? A people group is basically a group of individuals that have a common sense of history, language, beliefs, and identity. It is pretty much a group of people that considers us, us, and everyone else, them. While there are about 196 countries in the world today, there are over 16,000 distinct people groups. Let's look at Pakistan as an example. That is one nation going by our English word, but ethnically Pakistan has over 400 distinct nations, or people groups, within its borders. Around 7,000 of those 16,000 total people groups are considered UPGs, or unreached people groups. A group is considered unreached if less than 2% of their population is evangelical Christian. That is, it has too few true believers to evangelize and disciple the rest of the people group. Almost 3 billion people fall into this category. Over 3,000 of those 7,000 unreached people groups are considered UUPGs, or unengaged unreached people groups. These people groups have no churches, no believers, no missionaries, and no one actively focused on engaging them. All right, so that gives you a little, little background there. Jeremy, come on up. Everybody give Jeremy a hand. Uh, they are now part of our family, and uh, part of family means you've got to get to know them. And so you're going to get to know Jeremy and Claudia today, and we're, we're so glad you're part of what uh, the Lord is doing and allowing us to encourage you 
as you go on your endeavor to Namibia. So share a little bit right. about that. Thanks so much, Andy. So after watching that video, I feel like we've got a, a nagging question that needs to be answered. And that question is this. What does it actually mean to be a person who is living in one of those unreached people groups? And the reason I feel like that's a nagging question, because you're probably like me, you're an American. See, I spent 40 years in the States before I went over to Africa. And being in America, I don't understand what that means. How many translations of the Bible do we have? I don't even know. Hundreds of them, it seems like. And we get the fact that in, mentally that there's people there around the world that have a place that has few churches or they have few believers or they have very few uh, resources to actually access the gospel. We get that mentally. It's here in our brain because we put it forth in our actions because we actually send people over called missionaries. We send people to them. But do we actually get what it means to be living in an unreached people group? So this morning, um, with your permission, I want to take us on a little journey. Um, and I want to do that through the eyes of the people that we live with. So Claudia and I are missionaries to the Junquas people who live in the Kalahari Desert. Now, if you have no clue where that's at, I've put a little geography map up here for you. So that's the continent of Africa, if you don't know what that th thing is there. The blue thing is the globe, it's the earth. I used, I'm, I'm a geography minor, so I just wanted to make sure everybody was on the same page with me, and I didn't want to assume anything. So in the very bottom part is the country of South Africa. And if you come a little bit to the west, you see, um, I, put a, uh, I put it in black and it doesn't show up, I'm sorry, but that actually says Namibia, is the country of Namibia. And in the top there, uh, northwest corner, is a little uh, circle, or square, um, rectangle actually, it's the correct geometry. I was horrible in math. That's why I did history and geography, okay? So there's a little black rectangle, and in that little black rectangle is called the Nainai Conservancy, and that's where the Junhuas people live, okay? And they're an amazing people. And uh, how many of you have seen the movie The Gods Must Be Crazy? 1980s, 1990s movie The Gods Must Be Crazy? All right. That is the people group that we live with, all right? And so that is, that is where we are, and that is where we are living uh, with, with the Junhuas people. Um, it is a click language. Um, so they have four clicks in their language, and you can talk to me later about that. It's really fun to talk about how to try to, after 40 years of speaking English, how to train your brain to actually click in the middle of talking, all that stuff. By the grace of God, that only happens. But this morning, what I want to do is, with your help, through their eyes, I want you to try to understand what it actually means to be an unreached person. Because they're classified as unreached. Okay, so we're going to do a little experiment. On the count of three, I want you to take your hands, put them over your ears, and then I'm going to tell you something. And then when I'm done, I'm going to give you a thumbs up. When I give you a thumbs up, you can remove your hands. No cheating. All right, so you got that? Count of three, you're going to put your hands over your ears. I'm going to tell you something, and I'm going to give you a thumbs up, and then you can remove your hands over your ears. Got it? We good? All right, one, two, three. All right, does anybody know what I said? 
All right, let me try it this way. Let me, let me, let me think here. Let me, um, let me speak to you in a different language. Maybe that'll help, okay? Yohana tatu kumisita. Kwamana jinsuhi mungu alimoto muane wapeke ilikilu mtu amawani asipote bali awe na uzima wa malewe. Do I have any takers? Anybody still know what I'm trying to say? Nobody knows Swahili in Kingsport, Tennessee? What's going on here? All right. Um, can everybody here read and write? Is there anybody here who cannot read and write and will confess by raising your hand? All right, I'm going to take that as a yes. Everybody here can read and write. Okay, well, then I'm going to show you then what um, it means. Go ahead. All right. Who knows what I'm trying to say? Still no takers. You mean nobody here can read gibberish? It's an official language. You Google it. There it is. What I'm trying to tell you is something that you know because you're an American, because you've known it from a little kid. You see it on a poster during a football game when they kick a field goal. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's the message of John 3.16. It's the gospel message. But you see, when you live in an unreached people group, you might not ever hear that, those words. Not because you haven't chosen to, but that's just life. You see, the first time, somebody actually came to you, but you didn't hear anything. The second time, I tried to speak to you, but I wasn't speaking the same language that you were speaking. You couldn't understand me. What you heard was just noise. The third time, I actually showed you what it was. Oh, but see, you're an oral culture, something that we, in missionary terminology we call orality, meaning that, that you, all you do is you, you, you don't read and write. It's not because you, maybe not because you haven't been taught, but there's no reason for you to read and write most of the time. You're an oral culture. And so for me to write it down, you didn't, it's gibberish to you. It doesn't make any sense. You see, that is a part of what it means to live amongst an unreached people group. And it's not something that you choose to do. It's because you were born into that situation. Did you feel frustrated during that, maybe? Anybody feel kind of frustrated? and like, oh, I wish I knew what he was saying. Let me summarize for you, again, what it means to be unreached. Number one, going to have a limited access to the gospel. Remember, it's not because they're, they're denying it. It's just the reality. Number two, an unreached person could go the whole entire life and not hear the promise of John 3.16. But you might ask the question, well, what if they do hear the gospel? Then what happens? Well, you see, in an unreached people group, 
there's very few healthy churches. And I use the term healthy church on, for, for a reason, and we'll explain that here in a little bit. There's very few healthy churches. And there's very few believers nearby to even converse with about this new faith. Well, how about a Bible to read? No. There's probably not a Bible to read to and or even to listen to. I mean, the other day I was driving and I was, I was coming up here, I think, and on the radio I heard the gospel message. And I was flipping channels and just so happened to land on a, on a certain, I was coming up from South Georgia and I just so happened to land on a certain channel and it's like, it was like a commercial and it was almost shared the gospel in a commercial. And I'm like, and it just struck me like, there are people that live in this world that will never have the chance that I actually just had. And I'm just driving in my car on the interstate. You see, the unreached in general face many barriers. Um, you know, hearing the gospel in language is kind of just part of those barriers. But I want to look a little bit more in depth, if I can, through the eyes of the June Cross people who we actually lived amongst. Uh, for a year and are heading back to um, here pretty shortly. So let's go back to the beginning before I actually had you cover your ears. And let's pretend that you hadn't eaten anything in the last 24 hours. And what you actually ate was kind of like corn mushed up with some water. It's kind of like grits, okay? But without salt and butter. Just, just bleh. Um, And if you're lucky, you had a cup of tea that morning, and when I say a cup of tea, this puts southern sweet tea out to pasture, okay? It's tea in a cup, all right? Everybody got that? With that much sugar, pure sugar, all right? So basically, it's just brown sugar water. But they say if they can have that, it gives them energy. And I'm like, yeah, you're high on sugar, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Duh. But they say that's their energy drink in the morning. Um, so they'll have a cup of tea in the morning if they're lucky, um, with some sugar, and then they'll do the corn mush at night. Oh, and by the way, um, it rained last night because <clears throat> it was the rainy season, but you're lucky this morning because the bright African sun was up and you were able to hang your blankets out to dry, um, but it just seems like those holes in the hut just get bigger and bigger over time. The Junhuas people of the Kalahari are an absolutely amazing people. Um, here's my wife sitting with a lot of them. They're hunter-gatherers. They've been given a piece of land, the Nainai Conservancy in Northwest Africa, to continue, quote-unquote, their old ways. Um, but in reality, the situation is just like here in the U.S. with our Indian reservations. There's so many parallels. I was just talking to somebody about that earlier in the early service, I think. And the land is really too small for them to totally hunt and gather. And unfortunately, drunkenness... Poverty and depression are as common as a bird flying in the sky. Life expectancy is short, very short, about 40 to 50 years, due to proper nutrition and proper sanitation. You see, I'm about to turn 44. I'm actually a, nah, I'm an old man, okay? They refer to me as an old man. Uh, um, because of lack of nutrition and sanitation, life expectancy is short. So from a humanitarian point of view, um, there's actually many barriers to add on top of those other barriers that I talked about of being unreached. 
So let me summarize for you again what it actually means to be a bushman living in Chumque, Namibia, and to be unreached. Number one, they're going to have limited access to the gospel. Number two, there's going to be very few churches or even believers nearby. Number three, they don't have a Bible to read, and most can't read it anyway, even if there was a local translation done in their, in their heart language. Number four, there's many of hardships of life that just compound the spiritual barriers that already exist. And this is the takeaway for this morning that I want you to get. If you don't remember anything else from what we say, number five, they could go their whole entire life without hearing John 3.16. And it's not because they've rejected the gospel. They've never had the chance to even hear those words. The barriers are huge. But there's been unreached ever since the time of creation. We look at the Bible and we have a perfect story of a guy who went to unreached people. His name was Jonah. He went reluctantly, but he went eventually. So it's not, it's not a, a thing to God's like, oh, this is something new. How do we do this? No. So I want to go back to the question that we started with. What does it mean to be a person who is living in one of those unreached people groups? I hope that I've been able to answer that for you. And I hope that I've actually been able to, to help you to understand that a little bit more this morning rather than just stand up here and talk about facts and figures. But now that we might have a clear picture in our head of what it means to be a person living in an unreached people group, that presents us the second question that I want us to explore this morning. How in the world do we reach them then? So I'm going to ask Andy and Claudia to come up, and we're going to kind of explore this question together. And this is kind of the, the vision part of, 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 of our ministry. The first part is kind of the why. Why do you go? Well, there's people who don't have the gospel. And there's one guiding principle that we use, one statement with Africa Inland Mission. This is our mission statement. It's our goal is to share the gospel and to plant Christ-centered, reproducing churches. And so at that, I'm going to turn it over to Andy to ask us questions. You want to move this out of the way? Okay. Yeah, sure. Okay. Let me drop it back here so they can see. All right. So that, that leads, that quote right there leads to a good question. Um, you've talked about the, the people group and what the, the, the Bushman tribe is like a little bit. Uh, but what is the church like there? Because it's not like there's not some stuff that's gone on before. So give us an idea of what is the church like. There in Chumpque, there are several groups that you might say are churches, but um, we actually would classify several of them as cults. There's a seven-day Adventist church. There's a Zionist church. Um, there's another tribe there called Herrero, and they take advantage of the June Juncuas people, um, and they have a Catholic church that they attend. But there's also a prosperity gospel um, church where they give you a list of things that you have to do and then God will bless you in these ways and so it's works based it leaves out just the free gift of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for you um, when we were there previously we partnered with the Dutch Reformed Church um, and there may be five to ten people that attend on a Sunday um, 
a lot of the people still like to live out in their villages. And Chumquay is just a governmental center within the Nainai Conservancy. Um, and we know of just two people that have been baptized amongst the Junquas people. And so um, there's about three to 4,000 Junquas in about the 30 villages that surround um, Chumquay. And so two people definitely don't even get close to that 2% of the people to classify them as mm. reached. So they're definitely an unreached people group. So there's what you would call churches there, but in terms of being a gospel-centered, Jesus-focused, Bible-centered congregation, it doesn't hardly exist. Well, they're not sharing gospel with their neighbors, for sure. Um, mm -hmm. They, I would classify the Dutch Reform as the only one that is truly Christ-centered. Mm -hmm. um, and it's definitely not reproducing. They're mm -hmm. not going out to the villages and sharing. And so, as Jeremy said previously, it's not a healthy church. Mm -hmm. um, and so. Sure. And so that, that begs the question, how do you plan on making disciples who will then make disciples uh, when there's only two, maybe two baptized uh, newly baptized believers in the, in the three or 4,000 people. So, as I did earlier in the early service, I'm, it's going to take a little while for me to answer this because I think we need to step back a little bit and go, well, if we only have like two believers, then what tools and resources do we have to people actually hearing the gospel? Because it's hard to disciple people <laughs> if you have no Christians. I mean, you know, it's hard to make mashed potatoes out of eggs. You just can't do it. Um, you can try. Then tastes right. So, if they don't have the gospel, they can't hear it. They don't read. Then, from an oral perspective, what we're finding in, in missionary world right now is something called oral Bible storying, and that's creating a sixteen set story, sixteen to thirty two, two to three minute, uh, reproducible story set that that is tells the arc of the gospel from Genesis um, on into the New Testament. And so the purpose of that is to, to give these reproducible stories to, these, to, to them and to, through story fellowship groups that happen after these stories get crafted by the locals. And that, that's part of kind of what I'm going to be doing is walking alongside them to help craft these stories. In these story fellowship groups, what we do is we meet together and I will tell the story and then somebody else will tell the story. And this is done in the heart language, Junhuas. It's not done from a Western culture point of view or English or anything like that. And we'll tell the stories, and then, then through games, they will learn the story. Um, and then after they learn the story, then they sit and they tell the story to one another. And then after we do that, then we go into what uh, Discovery Bible uh, uh, series kind of, um, sorry, disco yeah, Discovery Bible question type questions, which is just simply, what does this story tell you about God? Where do you see yourself in the story? What do you like about God? What, is, you know, what do you like about it? What do you don't like about it? And then there is where you have people start internalizing the word. And that's a huge thing. Because I think a lot of times when we think about discipleship and we think about just bringing the word, we, we tell people what we want them to hear. And we don't come back and check back with them and say, well, no, what did it mean to you? And so when people can start taking the word of God, especially when you have people who have never engaged with it, and they can internalize it, wrestle with it in their brain, 
And then when they actually spit it back out or speak it back out, it has fresh, amazing new life. And they can tell it from their cultural perspective. And so the last question we ask in those groups is, who are you going to go tell this week? Who are you going to go tell this story to this week? So this process is going to take about a two year, it's about two years to get the, the story set kind of going. Um, but it goes back to how do you make disciples? Um, the old saying, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care, is so true here, and it's so true no matter where you go in life. And Paul, like, you were talking about John 15, man, and I mean, it's, it's that, it's abiding. And we have a saying in AIM, in our missionary group, that being is doing. And as Americans, we don't get that a lot. Because we just do, 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 and think that that is actually the ministry part of it. But being is doing. Just living amongst the people, going out in the bush, gathering firewood with them, gathering bugs and beetles and whatever, digging holes with them, just, just being with them is actually doing ministry. And that's planting the seeds so that when we actually come along and we start on a story group, they actually say, oh, these people are not crazy. These people are actually a part of us. Um, doing funerals with them. I'd done three funerals in that one year that I was there. Um, you know, just walking life together with them. So, well, so you're doing life with them. Mm-hmm. You're 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 doing compassionate things for them. They're learning Bible stories. They're then sharing those. They're learning how to share those with others, so that once they become believers, they naturally start doing those same things. Uh, it sounds like Jesus. Yeah. It sounds like the Gospels. Yeah. It's, it's pretty much, yeah, there's no secret there. Great, great, great. So you gave us a little bit of an, an idea there of what life looks like mm-hmm. in terms of going out together, firewood and other things. Share some more and just give, give people an impression of what a day in the life out with, in the bush really means. Um, well, I would get up and we'd open our door and really we would just say a little prayer. Okay, God, what, what do you have us to do today? And a lot of times I would sit with the ladies um, and under a shade tree because the sun is super intense there. And so you don't do anything unless you get up really early and go out in the bush and collect or you wait until late afternoon. Um, But I would sit with the ladies and make ostrich egg jewelry with them. And so I got all kinds of blisters on my hands. Um, Theirs are all leather. And so they're good. But... um, it was just a sweet time to sit in fellowship and just uh, they tell stories constantly and talk. And, you know, women are the same no matter where you are in the world. We like to talk. Um, and so um, that's what I'd spend most of my first part of my day with. And then in the afternoon, late afternoon, I'd go out in the bush and I would collect what they would eat um, to supplement their, their grit mush. Um, for their evening meal. Um, and then in the evening, when it was cooler, um, they sit under the stars in the Milky Way, which is absolutely amazing to see. You have no idea how beautiful it is because there's so many lights here in America. But when you're out in the Kalahari, there's nothing but the stars above. And they sit around their campfires and they tell stories um, of their day, of the past. And so this is the perfect opportunity to share these stories from the Bible also. Mm-hmm. And Claudia didn't mention something there, but the nearest store, just so you know, is three and a half hours away, okay, through the bush. Three and a half hour drive to the nearest store. So that's how remote this place is. Um, 
Yeah, to the grocery store, sorry. And so, well, tell them a little bit more. So it's not just you drive three and a half hours and you get your stuff and you come right back. Normally, what do you do? It's normally about a three-day journey. So it takes a day to get there because you don't want to drive at night. It's too dangerous to, to drive at night. You'll, you'll, wildlife will, will take out your vehicle, whether it's an elephant, giraffe, kudu. You know, just it's a totally different world over there. It's not like here we just get on, oh, I'm just going to drive through the night, turn my headlights on, and we're safe. Uh-uh, it's not smart. So you drive over there, and, it, and then it's a dirt road, and it just pounds your vehicle, and it's, it's a hard three and a half hours. And mm-hmm. um, you get there, and you, then you've got a shop, and that takes a while. You go around, you, you're loading up groceries. We go about every six weeks to the grocery store, basically. Kind of mm-hmm. load up everything, and then, then go back into the village. And that's a little bit of a, a respite time for you as it, well. Yeah, it is. There's that. a place we can get a pizza. <sighs> <laughs> At, in there, um, in the town, we can, we can grab a pizza and another little cafe that you can get like a sandwich with lettuce and tomato and mayonnaise and mm-hmm. it's good stuff. Because in the Kalahari, there is no, we're in Chumque where we are, there is no fresh veggies. So it's just all, all in the bush, bugs and beetles and things like that. And you'll have some canned things that you'll get from yeah. the store, yeah. Yeah. but then for you right. as a male, what is that? <laughs> What's the day in the life for, for the males like? So the males are kind of lazy. That's why I gave the mic to Claudia. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the males, they can hunt if they feel like hunting. Um, but the, actually the women do the majority of the work. They provide, what, 80% of the food that mm. is provided um, mm. there. The men can go hunt, but hunting is not that successful. Um, it's... Um, but the men will also sit around and talk and work on a few things and play games. There's a great mm. like Macaulay game that they play in the sand. Be like five people and five people. It's like 30 rows long, and it's just mm. an amazing thing to sit there and just listen to them just strategize and take all day. And you can see the wives are like, come on, we got to go get firewood. we got to go get firewood. <laughs> so I go out with my neighbor, and we go get firewood. Um, here my neighbor showed me how to uh, shoot a bow, but... There, he's, he's up in the tree. I put him up in the tree because the trees are real thorny and I get all cut. I'm just clumsy. I just can't, mm-hmm. can't get firewood without getting cut up every time because mm-hmm. everything there has a thorn about that big or that big. It's just crazy. And uh, so he got up in the tree and started hacking away at a branch right there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so that's, it's just being, it's just doing, it's sitting around talking. You mm-hmm. do that a lot. You just sit around and just talk and converse. For us, Initially, it's just sitting there like this, trying to say, I think I got one word, but I have no clue still what they're saying. So I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah, most, and we spend our, we spend a lot of our time doing language lessons Mm -hmm. at the beginning, and we'll be doing that as we go back Mm -hmm. to try to get our language proficiency up to conversation level and even beyond that. Mm -hmm. So what about Anastasia? Where, where will she be, and what will she be doing, and, and what's that like in the family culture of that area? Um, the women are sitting under the tree, and the children are just running freely and being children. You know, back when I was a kid, you could just run the whole neighborhood, and your mom didn't have to worry about it. And when the sun was starting to set, you came home for dinner. And that's kind of how it is over there. The kids just play. Um, the smaller ones stay inside of their moms. Um, and once you're old enough to carry a baby, they, they strap one to your back and you, 
you go out with the ladies and go gather with a baby on your back. Um, and so Anastasia will just be one of the kids running around with all the others. And I think it's so exciting that she gets to go and just learn a simple way of life um, and just be a kid. Um, and... I'm excited for it. Mm. I know people may think I'm crazy that I'm taking my child out into the Kalahari Desert, mm. but I think it's a gift that she will treasure um, when she gets older. Great, great, great. Well, so where are you in this journey? You've, you've kind of alluded to you were there before. Uh, you actually went off to Kenya for a while, and now you're heading back. So what's your next steps? So right now we've just, um, as of like three or four weeks ago, January 1st, we just completed our paperwork to the Immigration Board of Namibia, got it turned in. So we're waiting to hear back from them about our, our work visa. Um, so our work visas hopefully will be about a two-year visa. Our long-term plan is to be there about four to five years right now. That's our long-term goal, is to, to have that vision of, of being able to bring in a story set, do some discipling, plant Christ-centered, reproducing churches. Um, we don't want to be there forever. That's not healthy. It's not healthy for us. That's not healthy for them to depend on us. So we want to bring the gospel, give it to them in their heart language, teach them how to disciple each other, and then just get out of the way and let God go. Let them take it and roll with it. And so we think maybe within five years we'll see that can happen. But um, so we've got, we're waiting to hear back from the government. Um, like a lot of us do, we just wait to hear what the government wants to do. Um, it's no different over there than it is here. Um, and so we're waiting to hear back from the government um, to, to grant us our work visas. Once we once we've hear back, we'll hop on a plane and we'll take off. So you're hoping that's within... We could hear them back tomorrow. Yeah. I mean, it's we don't know. Because over there, it's kind of secretive. The, the immigration board kind of meets whenever they want to. And they're supposed to meet like every second Tuesday. But then they don't let you know until like a month later sometimes. And it's crazy. Mm. So you're hoping to head that way in the next month or so? We're hoping to head that yeah. way maybe. We put on our visa application, March, we're coming March the 1st. Hmm. We'll see if that maybe pushed push them a little bit to, to give right. us an answer, but yeah. Sure. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. exciting. That's coming, yeah. up, coming up soon. Yeah. So okay. how can we as a church come alongside you mm-hmm. um, now that we're sponsoring you? Yeah. Um, but tell us a little bit more about some practical mm-hmm. things we can do to encourage you along the way. Um. We have our prayer card um, on our table. There's a table as you exit the building. Um, and we ask that you pick one up. And as Jeremy says, whatever gets you up at 3 in the morning, put that prayer card there because that's at the beginning of our day because we're five to seven hours um, difference in time. And so um, if you'll pray for us, it's a huge thing. Um, And then on our table also, we have some little hearts, and we're just asking people to put their name on it and just a word of encouragement, um, a verse, a prayer, um, because we won't have a fellowship like you guys have here. We're going out there, and it's just us. Um, And so just to have some encouragement from home, to see the the hearts of the people that are supporting us um, is another way. Um, And then our newsletter. And then you can sign up for our newsletter at the table, too. Um, and that just gives you updates, um, play, ways to pray for us on those daily basis. You know, um, we are, it's 
not a creative access place where we're going so we can share names and faces and um, specific people that we are interacting with every day. Um, mm. and, and that's an email newsletter we send out about every two to three months. We won't spam you mm. on anything like that. It's just our way to connect with you. So, and I think I wanted to share too, um, just, to, just a moment just to say thank you, Grace Fellowship. Um, I said this earlier in the early service. Um, this morning I was reading in 2 Timothy, and at the end, it's in chapter 1, and at the very end of it, Paul talks about, he talks about, and he says, you know, um, all the people basically in Asia Minor have abandoned me. And he's talking about his missionary travels and the support that he had. He said, but there's this one guy, uh, one Sephorus, I think is his name, how you say it, one Sephorus, and he talks about this guy, and he just says, he stayed with me. And he was there for me. And so I was talking to Andy last night, and he, we, were, we were having a conversation. Of, he was asking, how as a church, how can we really, you know, how can, we, how can we support you guys beyond just the prayer and the financial part? Because as churches, we get that. That's something that we've just done naturally over the years. And I was telling him that just like Paul there said, hey, everybody's felt like everybody's really abandoned me. And I just, yeah, they're, they're supporting me and maybe they're, they're praying for me, which is good. But who's checking in on me? And so I, I, told, I told Andy, I said, it's so encouraging to have a church, a new church come along that can be there for us to, to come alongside and say, how are you doing spiritually? How are you doing emotionally? Let's not talk about the work part of it. Let's don't talk about the doing part. Let's don't talk about financial support over here or, or whatever there. Just how are you doing spiritually? How are you doing emotionally? Because those things, if those things are off, you can forget the doing part. And so I'm, in, I'm excited and I'm encouraged that, that you guys are going to come alongside of us and we're going to brainstorm some more about, about how that can happen um, in a real tangible way. Thanks so much for checking out our message today. We hope you are challenged and blessed by it. We want to invite you to come and worship with us in person if you live in the Tri-Cities area. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at One Fellowship Point in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can also get more information about us from our website or our mobile app. Have a great day.